you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Success Report. The Success Report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. You ready for this, bro? Man, I was born ready. I was already on fish and spaghetti. Uh, I'll pass this on the spaghetti. Special delivery. This is, this is just, this, man, this, is, this episode is a special delivery to our listeners and to the Fraser Institute. Yeah, special thanks to them, eh? Super special thanks uh, to the Fraser Institute for the invite to the Economics for Journalists program hosted by the Fraser Institute. So how, how did you, this one half of a podcast, get invited? Or, or even, well, I guess two questions. One, what made you interested? And two, how did you get invited? Okay, so... I I was interested in that why I I follow the Fraser Institute on Twitter and all major outlets and I read their articles and whatever they produce um they're basically for those of you who don't know they're uh, a, a policy economic think tank um believe in free market economics so I follow those guys Are they based out of BC? They, okay. Yes, I think I've so. I've always thought that but I never really double checked it but yeah, I, I think so. And so basically uh, I saw they had a program, Economics for Journalists, and they also have one, Econo- um, Policy for Journalists. Um, but um, I applied for the um, the journalist program. And yeah, um, they selected me. Um, I was like one out of 25 people that were selected for the program. And basically, the program is about, you know, journalists learning to think economically and present the material to their audience in a way that's uh, tangible and makes sense. So I, I had a ball, man. It, it was awesome. Um, they had me up in uh, the Marriott. You know, that was a good no look. No big deal. <laughs> uh, you know, the food was good. Uh, first night, we were at Joey's uh, for dinner. Uh, yeah, we, we, yeah, so we had uh, Joey's a lot of uh, networking going on. Even after the sessions, you know, you got to hang out with the people, um, got to kick it, got to know a lot of people. Um, so if you, if you're shy, this is not for you. Um, but yeah, man, I, it, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it, man. It really, um, blessed me and you, you know, and I'm excited for the listeners cause you know, they're going to get a better product because of it. So two questions that come to my mind. One is, you know, they put you up in a hotel. Do you th- was that the case pretty much for everybody that came to the the conference? And then, uh, yeah. you know, my my thought is to you, you know, what based on what you experienced, why do you think there was a willingness from them to pay, basically, you know, pay for people to come to the conference as opposed to having people pay to come to the conference? I mean, they're paying you yeah, in, well, in in kind, right? Right, right. So basically, uh, you know, having journalists who can uh, properly articulate or interpret the culture uh, for their listeners or their readers is 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 a very important um, aspect to the Fraser Institute. So it's worth it's worth it was worth them investing uh, that time into um, those people who have a platform and a particular niche audience. Um, and to help them think through these things, uh, these economic principles. Um, so yeah, they, they thought it was important enough uh, to, uh, you know, cover the bill. Uh, yeah. So so how long was the conference? Uh, from the thirtieth to the from to the second. So May May thirtieth. So May May thirtieth to the uh, June second. Okay. So. I mean, yeah. so Thursday night, 
is that Thursday? Yeah, Thursday night. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Thursday night. And that, and that was like game one of the NBA playoffs. So it was beautiful. So, you know, after like, you know, kicking with Joey's, you know, we everybody went to go watch the game. The finals. And then the next day, the yeah, yeah, the, 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 yeah, the first game of the finals, which was. Um, oh, was and, and you were downtown Toronto, right? So. Yeah, oh. it was downtown Toronto, man. So it was, it was a beautiful time to be downtown, man. I was just like, oh, man, this is like. Dope. Man, this is one step closer yeah. to heaven. It was it was great, man. Just the vibe was was live, and you know, the, meeting the people from the conference was good. Talking economics and politics and a whole bunch of other stuff. So it was it was beautiful. So the second other question I have is in respect to the other people that were there. Um, mm-hmm. You know what was what was the the spectrum of people in terms of whether it's ideology, where were they from, uh, and then you know my thought too is like. You know how many people like in podcast world were were from there? Okay, well, in regards to the podcast, I was the only podcaster. In that, uh, everybody were you know everybody were was a traditional journalist. They wrote articles <clears throat> and so forth. And it was funny because I kind of felt out of place in a way because I didn't see myself as a journalist. But you know, the guys were kind of telling me that I am a journalist and that journalism is kind of moving away from tra- from the traditional medium. And, you know, people are now looking to independent outlets, uh, podcasts, because people don't really read anymore. They rather listen. You can listen while you're washing dishes. You can listen while you're driving to work. So people listen to these outlets more. So uh, I, I was like, wow, I, I'm a journalist. Like, that's that's crazy. I never saw myself as that. So um, for that, I want to, you know, take the craft a little bit more seriously and study more. Uh, for the people who were there, we had people from like Omni Television. Uh, TV Ontario, the Toronto Sun, the National Post, Yahoo Finance Canada, uh, the from the Charles Adler uh, Tonight, uh, from Chorus Radio, some nationally syndicated radio shows, uh, CBC News. Uh, so yeah, so there was a lot of people from different outlets, but not everybody. Everybody still had a different perspective on things, so there was still some pushback, and not everybody, you know, held to the same economic principles. So it was good. It was really good. Do you think there was an aspect where that's part of the reason why they wanted uh, to to kind of, let's say, pay for this conference so that they would have people of different views, but also so that people with different views can actually in- read their articles with proper interpretation? Sorry, what do you so mean by that? So I, I guess my thought is, you know, I think there, there's a scenario that's coming to mind. I, I once shared a video by Tim Moen. Um where he was basically critiquing Trudeau's policy. And and one of my buddies commented something to the effect of like, I can't believe this guy thinks all these things. Like, he's so crazy. Like, you know, essentially critique, you know, saying he's like off the deep end. And I was like, mm-hmm. you know, Tim Moen, as he was breaking down the, the policies within the, the budget, and he was speaking to like the unintended consequences or... You know, what are the economic principles that are at play and how are things going to potentially play out? And so you know, my buddy's listening to him go like, this guy's absurd. It's crazy. He can't be, he can't actually believe these things. And and my, my point is that, you know, when someone has a different ideological bent than you and you propose, oh, the way that I want to help the poor is X, Y, and Z, there's, and, and it's such a contrast to the way that they would do it. There's there's almost this like switch in their head that says, oh no, you're just trying not to help the poor. And so what I'm thinking mm-hmm. is like, when you've got someone who's far left at a conference like this, that's you know put on by relatively a free market institute, um, they're actually going to potentially be able to read an article that pr- promotes helping the poor just in an astronomically different way than they would originally. And so rather than demonize it, they're able to present it in a manner that's honest to the intentions of the article. And so that's where I was thinking, you know, based on everything you've said, it seems like, well, that would be a reason why Fraser Institute would want to pay for it. Because now you're going to bring people who have a different ideological bent than you or a different, you know, um, policy perspective. But now they're actually going to be able to represent your side honestly rather than misunderstanding, you know, the more free market perspective. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. So it's important that we all 
are aligned with the right vocabulary. Mm. And I, and I and I thought that was key, you know, using the terms correctly so we're not misunderstanding each other. Uh so once you start like once we all we're all, you know, communicating with the right vocabulary, then ideas become a lot more clearer. So that's why it was good to have people from diverse outlets to be able to come together and say, Okay, wait a minute, what do you mean by um capitalism, free market, um, taxes and so forth, so that we're all making sense of these terms and using them correctly and really thinking them through. I mean, it's a process, you know, we're all, and, and all the people there were learning, which was a, which made it for a, a pretty fun environment where it didn't feel like there was any uh, prideful was it, was it, um, people there. Was anywhere. it almost more like uh, tutorial working sessions than, um, let's say, you know, uh, a lecture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it it was um it was definitely uh, more tutorial, um, going over the basics. We played a lot of games. Um, the teachers were excellent. They, you know, because sometimes you know economics can be dry and boring, <laughs> but a dismal uh, science. The, right? the 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 dismal science, man, and it's. And it's just one of those things where you're just like, man, this is this is really boring. <laughs> but uh, the the presenters were were, were really good um, and encouraging. So, um, yeah, it, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, so one of the things um, I learned was um, we talked, or one of the things we talked about was the economic way of thinking. So solving economic mysteries. So, so I, I'm, so there's like I'm, a process. I'm guessing you're jumping into one of your sessions that you had. So just yeah. as a super high level, um, I'm assuming we're not going to be able to cover everything that you touched. Um, why don't yeah. you, you give the listener a super high level of like the number of sessions, uh, the spectrum of topics, and then let's say a couple of the, the sessions that you want to cover or, or you think are, are worth covering. Um, Okay. Yeah. 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 Of course. Of course. Of course. So. 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 I'll give you. Uh. You guys. A, a brief overview. So for session one, we talked about the economic way of thinking, solving economic mysteries. Then session two, the mystery nations, institutions, growth, and freedom. And then session three, making decisions at the margin. Then session four, property rights and the tragedy of the commons. Session five. Be nice to the price, laws of supply and demand, and shortages and surpluses. Session six, uh, the number, the numbers one, what everyone should know about economics, nominal GDP and real GDP. Uh, session seven, the numbers two, what everyone should know about economics, CPI and unemployment rate and productivity. And then we looked at a case study analyzing a um, budget without breaking down by Ben Eisen it's from the Fraser Institute. And then a case study, uh, the end of the Kretschmer consensus. And that was by ben, ben Eisen as well. And then we had a session 10, which was uh, trade around the world, Canada and the global economy. And that was done by Mark Shrug. And then session 11, money and monetary policy. Bill Watson, and then session 13, why good politics is bad economics, public choice theory with uh, Tony Hunt Ferrari and Bill Watson. And then uh, session 14, economics in the news uh, with Mark Shrug, Tony Hunt Ferrari and uh, Bill Watson. So so just for the listeners, just so you guys can um, stay um, aligned with where we're going. So we're going to look at, we're going to discuss session one. The economic way of thinking, solving economic mysteries. And then we're going to look at session four, property rights and the tragedy of the commons. And then session 13, why good politics is bad economics, public choice theory. I thought those those three um, were uh, the most helpful for me personally. Now, the way the first one, uh, the economic way of thinking, solving economic mysteries, was just a very practical way of thinking through um, economics. So Again, I'll define economics as the art of making choices, right? So 
point one, and if you're following at home and you want to take notes, so point one is people choose. Point two, people's choices involve costs. Point three, people respond to incentives in predictable ways. Point four, people create economic systems, rules of the game that influence individual choices and incentives. Point five, people gain when they trade voluntarily. Point six, people's choices have primary and secondary effects. Okay, so let's uh, jump through a couple. I mean, me and my history of economics, you know, I took a couple courses in university in economics. So right away, I'm like, I could, you know, expound on all of those points in, in different ways. So um, I think people choose, it should be relatively straightforward. But but the part I want to jump on is it makes me think of for um, Ludwig von Mises' book, Human Action. And and I think he's in, he's referencing the same idea in that, People act, um, and and you could say people choosing and people acting are, are relatively the same thing. Um, it's and those actions have cho- involve costs. Um, right. So just to just to draw a parallel with with the school, the Austrian school, because um, I don't think um, they're necessarily an Austrian school. I would guess that Fraser Institute is a little bit more um, Chicago school, but but I could be wrong. Well, you know what. I think they're well. Maybe, well, maybe we should get Ben Eisen on the show uh, to come on and explain what is the Fraser Institute and how they remain nonpartisan and where they fall on the economic spectrum and school of thought and why uh, people need to be up on what the work that Fraser Fraser Institute's doing. So yeah, yeah. So maybe we can reach I'm, out to him for we, that. If, if he's listening to this, that's a formal invite. Let's get you on the show. <laughs> um, but we'll see. We'll we'll tweet the show at him. Maybe he'll uh, maybe he'll follow yeah. up with us. Yeah. Um, okay. So I mean, of of those points, is there anything for you, um, you know, that that you want to uh, expound on, or you found really intriguing, or or where you really learned the most, even? Well, you know, it was a lot of stuff that we've, well, you know, things that we've talked about. But again, it, it's. I think it was just the profundity of the principles and how applicable they are to everyday life. So, um, like, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And looking mm. at, uh, <laughs> just looking at, like, the opportunity costs, like, even though something's free, it still costs you something. Well, what does it cost you? Well, your time. Mm-hmm. Well, right? and so, that, that's where I thought people's choices involves cost is interesting if you really dig into well, what, is, what do you mean by cost because i think opportunity cost is something that if people really comprehended what that meant um they would have a different perspective on many many things a really simple example um you know in the world that we currently live in where people are talking about um tax dollars going towards you know in the u.s they're talking about paying off education in ontario we're talking about osap funding cuts um Opportunity costs would be where, like, the different places that, let's say, $100 million within the budget could go, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So the opportunity cost is if I give it to this place, it can't go to this place. So I'm using government, which probably sounds foreign for anyone who is normally listening to what I have to say. But if we look at it from an individual, you know, your opportunity costs are, okay, I have 100 bucks to spend on clothes. Well, I either spend $100 on a brand new pair of shoes or maybe I can buy four different shirts, right? So the opportunity cost of a new pair of shoes is four shirts or $100 in savings. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but we're always, we're always, um, our choices are always kind, are always being drawn towards something. And so that's why I found it very profound, just starting from the starting point of the art of making choices, uh, so there's always a cost to every decision we make and that to accept something is to reject something. And, something else. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of times when we think about mm. economics, we always think about monetary. Um, it mm-hmm. always comes to money and it kind of scares people. We think of charts and numbers and, yeah, it kind of scares people away. But there's also like, there's also like, you know, a, a simpler, more practical way to look at economics. Uh, your The benefits exceed the cost. You know, just just basic, simple things like that. And and another phrase was mentioned was, um, you know, if it matters, measure it. 
If it mm-hmm. matters, we measure it. So, you know, we always want to try our best to measure these things. So it, it brings into a lot of questions, even the way we do things as Canadians, like not measuring um, race statistics on, you know, kids in school and so forth. So it, it's, it just got you thinking. It just kind of got the, the wheels turning. But um, I yeah, found it I, very helpful. I, I think a, a scenario that would, I think a way to, if anyone hasn't, you know, my examples haven't worked so far would be, uh, you know, when you have a family and you have an opportunity to work overtime, right? You don't have unlimited hours. So by working 10 hours in overtime in a week, you're you're rejecting 10 hours of time with your family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So I don't know. I just thought of that on the spot, especially now that I've got two kids. Um, you know, family time is very important. And so, yeah. yeah, you might get time and a half. You might get two and a half times your pay for OT. Yeah. But... You know, family time is it might be invaluable in comparison. Right. It's and one of the, I guess for me as a Christian, you know, and I started thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, well, this economics art of making choices. I'm like, but you know, as, as Christians, we work from a different paradigm. So, like, you know, you know, making a choice to follow Jesus is an economic decision. Um, it impacts your life and changes the way you look at money, the way you look at love, marriage. And so forth. Uh, so when you look at, you know, in Luke chapter 14, verse 26 to 28, Jesus says, if anyone, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross, um, a tool of suffering, and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? So again, um, the art of making choices and being a Christian and having uh, the call to follow Christ, and that is an economic decision. And even like there's like aspect where you're thinking like, okay, well, there was a point prior to like me becoming a Christian um, you know, I had imperfect information based on the market I was in. I had imperfect information uh, to make decisions as a Christian. So when you're converted um, and you become a Christian, then you have the correct enough information to make a decision on to follow him and what that's going to cost you um, going forward. So mm-hmm. I, I was kind of making those connections. I was sitting there. I was like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, now I can kind of see the practical implications of economics in my theology. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would say, you know, you, you've laid out a text. Um, one, if I think it's easy for people to misinterpret the first half to be like, so the Bible's telling me to hate everybody, mm-hmm. um, which would be, <laughs> uh, well, we eisegesis, um, right, is taken out of context, right? It, and t- correct me if I'm wrong, but wouldn't you agree that that's saying in contrast to my calling towards God. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so, so yeah, 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 yeah. So, so your love, your love for God in comparison for others should look like hate. Yeah. Um, and denial. As opposed to yeah. act, you know, act in a manner of hate towards. Yeah. Yeah. People. No, it's not like, you know, hate your mom, but you know, you, you're choosing God over everything else. You choose God over your own life. And that is a decision um, that's going to cost you something. And, and so what I was going to get at was that I think, the interest, well, as you're breaking this down to me, that you're going through this in your mind, I think for the listener who either you know Christian or you know other people who aren't Christian or the listener who's not a Christian, your worldview when it comes to morality and ethics also influences what what costs are yes, and, and the decisions you make are costs. Right. So as much as you're reflecting on your own going, oh my goodness, I see the overlap of theology and, and economics, you, I would say... That's going to reign true for everybody, regardless of their worldview. Nah. And in a different manner, in that, like, yeah, well, yeah, oh, if that. I'm, <laughs> but my point is, oh, if I'm going to align with this worldview or this worldview, and let's yeah, say, oh, yes, you know, yeah, oh, yes, you're right. Yes, yes, okay. Whatever I, I worldview you, yes, you align you're right. with, you're right. It's, it's going to reign true. Right, um, you're right. So, okay. but, well, but I, I, I agree, there's a, there is a difference. There should be a difference when you're, you know, holding to this idea of uh, objective good. Right. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, the other 
there's we, we've only really got into the first two, which is I think good the because it's one. very well. We got into costs as a little bit too. Uh, uh, no, well, okay. So the next costs. Yeah. So the next one is session four, uh, property oh, rights. I, I meant point two, but oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, moving on to session four because I, I like this one. Session four uh, deals with property rights and the tragedy of the commons. For for you, like, had you heard that term tragedy of the commons before? Well, no, no. So I I, I didn't know what that was. And it was basically, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, basically using a common space. So common space that nobody really, that nobody owns. So, you know, the air, the ocean, uh, but also... Uh, your work fridge. So, so that, yeah, but, but what, it, so do you know what the, so I think you've defined the second half, right? Like what qualifies as a commons, mm-hmm. um, but what's the tragedy of the commons? Oh, the, tra- oh, the tragedy is, uh, the sin of people, uh, you know, using up the resource, uh, that other people have to use. So like you have, if you have a pond and then you have fish in there and then somebody uses up all the, you know, takes all the fish and there's a fish for other people um or you know so you always usually have somebody or a couple individuals or just an individual taking using up the resource um so that the other people won't be able to benefit from the the idea is that the tragedy is that the individuals there because nobody owns it people misuse it um well it's not that they misuse it it's that people will take advantage contribute well uh, it's it's that you as an individual are incentivized to use more than you contribute back, mm-hmm. which means you're deteriorating that common good over time, right? So there's there's no incentive for somebody to contribute more to this common good than they use, right? Okay, because they don't because they they reap no benefit from it, right? You the benefit you reap is from taking, not from putting back. Now. Over the your lifetime, use a park as a simple example, right? Um, the the community that uses the park individually, they will take more from the park than they put back, and this is why you have to pay taxation to the government for them to manage the park because it's not owned by anyone in the first place. Right. So usually, so the solution to the tragedy of the commons is property rights, and we talked a lot about property rights and why it's important. And and I thought the most practical example they gave was the one with uh the kids uh kids and and sharing and teaching kids to share and i i tweeted or i posted on uh on instagram uh, a survey and it was it was pretty funny but i got a lot of uh, reaction from uh from the the survey so so this is the question and you guys can follow along at home and, and tell us what you guys think very practical so it's from Sesame Street's Parents Guide. So, mom would bring home toys from garage sales, but not assign ownership to one of three children. Upon reflection, I could see how the fuzziness of ownership easily led to arguments. If everything belonged to everyone, then each child felt he had a right to use anything. So, what's a private solution? So, a private solution. Mom suggested two simple rules. First, never bring anything into the house without assigning clear ownership to one child. Second, the owner is not required to share. Now property rights, not parents, settle the arguments. What do you guys think? Or what do you think, Joel? Well, I, well, actually, so, no. I mean, I know what you think. That's what. Yeah, yeah. I know because I replied. So, so you post. I don't remember the post I, specifically, I but I know you. You put that basically the 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 crux of what you just laid out there. You put that on so on Instagram. Yeah. The funny part is, me and my wife responded slightly differently. Right, well, slightly, um, slightly. But, but hold on, I gotta give them the math. I gotta, I gotta I give co- the math, right? I, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so, okay. so the percentages. I qualified my answer just to 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 give the list. Oh, yeah, yeah. So basically, the the way how the percentages broke down was so 29% said yes. And then 71% said no. So the majority of everybody said, uh, no, it's, it's not good to give kids, uh, govern kids through property rights. It's better to just tell them to share. 
So what was the question that you, what, like to, to be specific, what was the question you posed, the yes or no question? Uh, well, so is this a good solution to kids not sharing? Property rights, uh, letting property rights govern uh, how toys are being used, or you just have parents come in to police the situation? And everybody pre- preferred, 71% said, okay, it's better to have parents come in and police the situation. And And so my answer was that I thought, in and of itself, it's not good, but I kind of liked it. But my the reason I liked it is, it like to some extent what you said, re- dispute resolution is through property rights, but it doesn't teach the kids to share, so it doesn't do anything in and of itself with respect to sharing. It's creating a standard to stop the fighting, and so I would argue you kind of need the first, or sorry, you need to stop the fighting in order to then be able to teach them to share. Mm-hmm. Right? Like when they're fighting, and if, if you're in a constant state of fighting, you need to stop the fighting first. And so something like, these are your toys, these are your toys, these are your toys. You like, And now, if someone is fighting over a toy, whose is it? Okay, problem solved. Right? In the sense of getting rid of the fighting. When it comes to sharing, I mean, my wife pointed this out to me, and it was like, she saw this, she was at a play place, but we got a kid who's under two at the time. Um, and she saw this at a play place and was like, okay, I, I, you know, was like, yep, that's what I'm doing. Which was basically she saw a mom give a kid like a ball and said, go give this to somebody else. And, and I think the ball was from the play place. So it was no, it was a common property, but it was the idea of teaching the kid to share. I think the way that we currently teach kid to sh- kids to share is actually horrible and actually counterproductive. <laughs> the way that we keep teach kids to share is when someone comes up to you and wants to steal your property, give it to them because you've had it for long enough. Now, obviously, I'm being a little bit ridiculous yeah. in the way I'm describing this scenario, but the reality is that is what we're doing. We wait until somebody else wants what we have, so we're not actually curtailing the NVB problem, and then we're actually... And this is why I said it, I think it's horrible the way we teach them to share. Because envy is the problem with the kid trying to steal that we're not addressing. And we're actually addressing it by telling the other kid, give him your stuff. Right. And so I just think it's, you know, we're not actually teaching to share. We're teaching when someone's asking for your stuff, you should give it to them. Yeah. No. As, as opposed to like the scenario I laid out where it's like, okay, Go give this to someone. Or, hey, your kid's been playing with something for 10 minutes. Hey, I think someone else wants to play with that. Can you go give it to them? You know, and encouraging your kid to actually share, uh, in essence, on their own volition, as opposed to under duress. You totally- yeah, and you want your kids to be able to um, share because they want to. And then that that deserves a pat on the back versus, you know, parent coming in to, to police the situation and forcing the kid to share well he didn't really share like what what is sharing really just right did he do what he was told or did he share yeah and at the end of the day you know what i mean the kid is still resentful um so i don't know so so before before we move on i want to bring it back to this idea of like people might think oh how does how is property rights actually solve the tragedy of the commons mm-hmm. right so let's use a park example that i laid out um you know, I have a buddy of mine who actually lives uh, just off uh, in, in Toronto um, or, or Park Lawn is the exit that I go to his condo. And I remember being up in his condo and there's like essentially three condo buildings that share this this park um, in as- just based on proximity. And and the park also has the water reservoir aspect that that helps the buildings from being flooded slash, you know, maintaining the let's call it the ecological system. And so the idea is if those if if this park which actually is fundamental from these buildings not, you know, from the land under those buildings being stable um, as well as serving the citizens primarily that live in those buildings. Um, think of a condo essentially all the all the people within each condo own a share in the condo building. Well, now if if these condos collectively owned the park between the three of them only, they would have, uh, you know, this is a anarchist 
anarchy capitalist solution to some extent. But the idea is that you would have perpetual contract agreements with each other, the three buildings. So if for some reason that condo was sold to a new company, this contract would be inherited. They wouldn't be able to void it. And that is essentially, let's say, property maintenance costs or whatever is a shared cost. Maybe they, they outsource the cost of this park, uh, as well as, oh, getting an annual ecological assessment to determine if the water reservoir is doing its property proper job. But all of this is a perpetual contract that if one of the buildings wanted to get out of, it would have to get the other two buildings, all, you know, all three of these organizations would have to collectively agree how to move forward. Um, nobody can just unilaterally move out. And, and the reason why I want to bring that up is to show, well, this park now, is not going to suffer from the tragedy of the commons. It's not going to be full of, you know, trash because the people that own the park are the ones who use the park. And so they have a vested interest in maintaining the park for their property value because they actually collectively own this park. Okay. All right. So then the last point or the last uh, session that stuck out for me was uh, session 13. Why good politics is bad economics, public choice theory 101. And it reminded me of a very profound quote uh, from economist Thomas Sowell and his book, Basic Economics. And he says this, by its very nature, as a study of the use of scarce resources, which have alternative uses, economics is about incremental trade-offs not about needs or solutions. That may be why economists have never been as popular as politicians who promise to solve our problems and meet our needs. And so this is where we see the difference between politics and economics when it comes to public choice theory. And so defining public choice theory, we defined it as, as it applies to the analysis most often associated with the study of private markets uh, to uh, behavior in government. So basically, special interest groups lobbying to get politicians to um, get what they want done and basically uh, taking from the, ma the majority to um, give special privileges to a particular uh, group. And so, yeah, that's what we uh, talked about. So, I mean, it's, you know, it sounds... Uh, in essence, that they were identifying the fact that public choice theory doesn't generally or unfortunately doesn't actually support the individual as its primary. No, purpose. no. So it, it would be a more like a special group. So, for example, uh, individual behavior in government is influenced by many of the same considerations that influence behavior in the markets. So what incentives motivate voters? What incentives motivate government officials? How, how do elected and appointed officials have uh, um, or face scarcity? How do elected and appointed officials face competition? And how do elected officials make voluntary exchange for mutual gain? So, yeah, in, in essence, the the way that our political system is structured, the decisions or the incentives of the politician are not aligned with the needs of the majority. Yeah. Or, or even the, the everybody, even the minority, right? Like if, if politicians were making decisions that were effectively good for everybody, but maybe helped prevent injustice to a minority people would look at that and go you know what that's a good thing yeah you know we stopped hurting part people people among us um maybe i'm a little bit uh naive to think that in general people would be happy about that um mm -hmm. right but i think but i think it's it's a fair assessment that major most of the time um the majority will be happy when policy is passed that stops hurting the minorities Right. So even it kind of reminded me of the Maxime Bernier situation where, you know, he was with the conservative party, but then he he was like saying that they were um, because of public choice theory, they were 
compromising their convictions as conservatives. So they were no longer conservatives. Uh, so he, he broke off from them to start his own party. Because mm. mm-hmm. that, that, that was his accusation was that, you know, you know, these special interest groups, um, uh, you know, have, I guess, infiltrated but, the conservative party. And so now the conservative party aren't, aren't using good economics to make decisions. They're basically playing politics to please whatever uh, group can benefit them the most. Yeah, I mean, in, in essence, what you're referring to or what, what he was referring to was this idea of like an agricultural board that um, in essence sets the price uh, or prices of different, you know, and in, in specifically he was referring to the dairy board in this sense. Um, and, and the idea behind it is, oh, for the farmers, we want to make sure that, they, you know, they're they're better off so that you know we're protecting the Canadian this is the argument there the if if the dairy farmers of Canada are are protected well then the citizens of Canada will get the dairy they need or whatever the however you want to play that out but the idea is that in from an economics perspective if we allowed for because part of part of the dairy board and agricultural board is that, and if you look at the North American Free Trade Agreement, or I don't remember what it's called now, the U.S. Canada Mexico Agreement or something, um, basically the Canadian dairy is a protected market. You know, we I don't know about you where all our listeners are, but in Ontario, to get any dairy outside of Ontario is like literally almost impossible. Um, you know, I, I found a few things. There's uh, Kerrygold's a brand from the UK. Um, there's a company, La Centure, I think. It's a French company from Quebec that I, I've... But for the most part, everything's Ontario. And and everything comes through uh, an agricultural board that controls everything. And basically, Maxime Bernier wanted to blow them up and, and open up Ontario to or, or Canada from an agricultural perspective to free trade. So... Simple example would be like, why should Vancouver have stuff shipped all the way from the other side of Canada when they might be able to get it, you know, five hours away in the U.S.? And the idea there is that it's going to cost uh, Vancouver less or the citizens of Vancouver less for their dairy, which would make them better off. Um, I mean, without getting down into... But the idea is, from an economics perspective, this good politics which panders to the canadian individuals who are benefited i.e the the dairy or the the agricultural those influenced by agriculture so the good politics is oh i'm gonna help canadians i'm gonna sell this to canadians but from an economics perspective it actually makes us worse off in the long run because maybe that the farms in canada need to be repurposed for something else maybe cannabis i'm just kidding well Maybe not, but but the idea is that maybe there needs to be a reallocation of resources because there's an alternative, i.e. the opportunity cost aspect of this, where for us it would be better off to buy from a different place, so, and then this, you know, yeah, there's going to be short-term pain in in for that industry, where maybe the Canadian aspect of dairy has to contract by fifty percent, well, those fifty percent people are going to be hurt in the short term, yeah, but. Is that better than me being, you know, living paycheck by paycheck because I can can't quite afford all of my food? Right? Like maybe if we we drop the price of of agriculture in Canada by 20%, that the there's a larger number of people that don't really realize that wait a second, I'm going to be better off on my day to day where I'm not going to be as stressed from my paycheck because my food cost, which is a fundamental aspect of living, is dropped by 20%. And so your point, good politics, because the optics are one way, but bad economics. Um, and I think uh, Frederick Bastiat, and I'll put this in the show notes page, you can get it as a book if you want to, or you can you can download it. Uh, in, the link I'll send will actually be, uh, I don't know, I'll put up a couple links. I have the link right now for the actual, um, essentially it's an article um, by Frederick Bastiat called That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Not Seen. Um, I mean, Frederick Bastiat was from like the 1800s, but it's amazing uh, how this works. But the idea comes back to 
you know, you, what you were talking about with costs or opportunity costs. So what's seen is where you spent the money. What's not seen is the opportunity cost where you could have spent the money. Uh, and so economics is actually weighting those two things. It's comparing the seen thing, right? What actually happened with which what could have alternatively happened. And I think for so many, this is what makes it a dismal science because you're measuring something that is almost immeasurable. Right. I was, one of the things that also stuck out was that um, in regards to incentives matter and how it impacted voters, public choice theory, I found it very fascinating. And we we talked about this thing called rational ignorance. So uh, voters like consumers favor candidates um, that provide them with the benefits they desire, support causes they wish to support. So because voters know that a single vote rarely makes a difference, they tend to free ride. Uh, so free ride is uh, means uh, public good without paying for it. So for voters, they like they prefer to free ride on information uh, provided by the media and um, the campaigns. So that means like low information voting. So that uh, so they depend more on the media instead of researching it themselves because uh, you know do, taking time to do the research is costly just to do the to do the work to you know look up look up what every platform believes like who actually does that well we do that because it's a success report but <laughs> but in general like you know people don't do that so the cost is high and the benefits are low so people rationally choose to be ignorant and rather um you know play politics so this is you know and, and it kind of hits to the heart of what why we do this show to inform people so they're actually not rationally ignorant but rationally informed so wife was sharing with me calls me over and she's study, she's doing some uh, some studying through uh, athabasca um i think it's in a psychology course so she she called me over to look at this thing called the need for cognition so there the idea is that people that are in a high need for cognition sorry what do you mean by cognition so the 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 it's called the need for cognition. So cognition is like cognitive abilities, the ability to like think through things and and get you know, um, pro like it's kind of mental processing, is the idea. Um, so uh, audience, there's there's kind of they classify people as either being high need for cognition or low need for cognition. So people who are high rather than low in their need for cognition like to work on hard problems, search for clues, make fine distinctions, and analyze situations. And then the, um, the high uh, NC is the way they referenced it. Audience should receive information-orientated information -orientated appeals, and the low need for cognition audience should be treated to appeals that rely on the use of peripheral clues or cues. Sorry. But the idea is that the, the, like we, me and you doing the dig deeping, the report, you know, it's like this aspect of like, I want to dig into an issue, right? We're, we're demonstrating a high need for cognition, meaning I'm not going to listen to the debate on TV for the politicians and go, oh, you convinced me that you're better. I'm going to go look at the platform and go, this is hot garbage. This one's less hot garbage. This one's pretty decent. I can get behind this. Um, and, 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 and start to actually, how, how is this going to work? Right? So the idea of, you know, stuff on the, the far left in the U.S. where it's like, oh, we're going to, cancel all student debt we're gonna you know healthcare for medicaid for all the like high cognition individuals or high need for cognition individual would say well how are we going to pay for that the low need for cognition individual would be focused on whether or not the person selling it is you know believable do they think it's a good idea do they do they tell me they can do it they it's you know it's just a matter of funding. You know, the government can print the money, right? Like 
is it, it's presented in a way that I can get behind it. There's an emotional appeal to some extent. The peripheral cues is really in the presenter. That's what that's referring to. It's not the actual content of what the presenter is saying. Um, and so I, I just, you know, it's it's reflective of what you were saying with respect to, you know, me and you and in, in, in the way that we look at these issues. Oh, I got to dig in. I got to learn it. I got to figure out what's going on. I'm not going to record a podcast on something that I've, you know, just heard a couple people speak on. I'm, I'm going to listen to like five podcasts on it. I'm going to, you know, do some read a bunch of articles. That's why if you look at our show notes page, they're full of content. Because we didn't just go to one person. We didn't just go to one source. We didn't just go to the Fraser Institute. We went and found the National Post article that argues the complete opposite. Right. So so what, what's your two cents on this, um, on the three sessions? And, 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 and uh, well, I think, for journalists in general. Well, I think, you know, you, you've kind of maybe, you started off by saying something that, that I was like, yeah, I agree, which was, you know, we're not really journalists or you didn't look at yourself as a journalist. Um, and I think that's, you know, I would say I would, I totally agreed with you. And my thought was like, I hate writing. So well, how could I be a journalist? And and not that I hate writing. I'm just, you know, I'm not in a place where I, I want to sit down and write. I mean, I was, that was school for me and I'm done with school to some extent. Um, you know, I, I, I prefer audio format. Um, in both listening and speaking, I guess. Uh, and so uh, to some extent, uh, I was, as we're talking, I'm kind of like, I was stewing over this idea of like, I guess we are journalists, you know, because they were convincing you you're journalists. And I'm like, well, if they're convincing you, I mean, me and you arguably do the same thing. I mean, you've got a blog. So, wow, you got that one up on me with your journalism. Um, but I think uh, for the listener, it's, that what makes us different from a journalistic perspective is that we're introducing the economics perspective and a theological perspective uh, on these issues. And whether you agree with our economic perspective or our theological perspective, at least we're bringing that to the table. So much of the mainstream media reporting is not actually breaking down their theology, not actually breaking down their economics. It's deeply embedded in whatever they're telling you without telling you that that's what it is, right? Like you cracked open the Bible and was like, here's the text that was blowing my mind when I'm learning or when I'm listening to this stuff on economics to go, you know, to bring the theological side of it in, expound on it a bit, and then actually be able to say, okay, here's how I came to my conclusion. Here's here's why I'm thinking this way about a topic. And and I would say what makes that better than the mainstream is that it allows the audience to go, okay, I can disagree with you know some of your premises, or I can take issue with some of your premises, but I can see how you got there and I can respect it, as opposed to so much of mainstream is, here's what you should think on an issue. Uh, without really telling you, okay, here's the economic principles behind it, uh, or here's the theological perspective behind it. Um, it's just, hey, the conservatives are evil, and I mean, oh, man, I've been listening to some stuff lately. I try to listen to some stuff on the left, and it's just, it's, it's. I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't classify myself as right at all, but it's just so right you know, the right bashing, it's like, oh my goodness, you're just playing politics. You're not, you're not actually reporting. You're just playing politics. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're calling the conservatives racist and K, you know, it's like, are, are the people who, the five members of the KKK in Canada, are they conservatives? Maybe. Sure. Whatever. Like, are there people that are behaving poorly as a whole? Yeah. I, I, you know, it's crazy to hear that like anti-Semitism is increasing, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I definitely don't consider that to be people from the right. Uh, I mean, to me, that's, I, I, I consider anti-Semitism to be nonpartisan for the most part. So I don't know. Sure. There's problems with people being jerks. There's problems with people being, you know, hateful, um, would I put that on the left or the right? No, I'd say it's pretty much equal on both sides. 
So, um, you know, I know I kind of stepped away from this, you know, what your question was, was what's my two cents? But my two cents is that, you know, until people stop, you know, throwing, you know, dirt at the other side and seeing what sticks and actually start engaging ideas, um, you know, I think we're still going to have a platform to that people want to hear what we have to say. Uh, and hopefully they can start to, you know, I, I hope the audience reaches out to us when they see something and they're like, what's the economics behind this? If you don't know, you know, haul at us, let us, you know, challenge us to, to break down the economics on stuff. I, I mean, I'd love to get, you know, an article from the, from a listener being like, can you guys break this down on your show? Um, because we want to introduce the economics on it. We want to break down what the other, you know, side of it's, you know, like before I jump into this example of us steel manning, you know, I'll get your two cents on it, but I wanted to, to, to reference last week's episode on dodgeball with that idea of steel manning. You know, so Darnell, for you, you know, what's your two cents on this, on, on, you know, going to this conference, um, you know, what would you say to the listener? How would you challenge the listener? How would you tell the listener they could go next year? Um, what's your two cents? Okay. Well, I think that, well, I'm thankful for the time. So thank you again, Fraser Institute for the opportunity. I'm, I'm extremely grateful, learned a lot, and I'm going to definitely be a, trying my best to apply these principles, uh, to my reporting, uh, for the podcast. I met a lot of awesome people and hopefully, you know, I, I would like to have some of the people I've met, um, at the, um, um, through the program, um, from on the show, uh, shout to Graham Gordon. Uh, one day, hopefully we'll get him on. He's, uh, he's an interesting character and, um, has a unique perspective on things. Solid dude. Uh, so, uh, so, so my two cents to the, to the listener is I was concerned about rational ignorance and it really hit home for the show. And so like part of it is not letting the masses dictate what's right or what's true. So even as a, you know, as a Christian, you know, we know that the masses, the collective don't determine what's right. Um, but the scriptures and the individual is called to be responsible and make an informed decision. So when we look at like, you know, you know, some of the dilemmas or problems that come from the democratic process, the short sightedness, um, spend now and worry about it later, um, the tension of the special interest groups, which leads to um, the rational ignorance effect. Uh, I just encourage the listener to um, be informed and do your research and make um, sound decisions. So for the listener, I would just encourage them to get back to the basics. Uh, what is right? What is true? What is the true? What is the good, right? What is the Canadian mm -hmm. uh, looking at virtue and wisdom and making decisions in that? Yes, you know, your vote does matter um, and that you do have um, credibility in the political process. And, um, it, you know, and, and it, still, it still counts for something. So I would just encourage the listeners uh, to be faithful citizens, uh, faithful citizens of your country. So those are those those of us who are Canadians and faithful citizens of the kingdom of God, and those two merge together um, in our economics and our theology. Uh, yeah, that that that's my two cents. And for those of so, you guys, um, for the audience, let us know what your two cents is uh, on these issues. Maybe uh, some of the sessions we mentioned we didn't cover that you would like us to cover in the future. Uh, let us know. So, the the other side of it, you know. Six Sense Reports got an in. With the, if you want to go to this conference next year, you, you should try and be an intern. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> That's funny. Maybe, maybe we can uh, hook you up That's funny. and uh, get you in that door because, you know, we don't know about any other podcast that's been to this conference. So, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah that was I, I mean, I, and I would say, you know, you're right with respect to, you know, our vote does matter. And I would say the primary way that we actually vote is with our money. Okay. How you spend your money, where you spend your money is your primary way of voting. So, um, yeah, that's a, a, a thought. Maybe uh, if an audience member doesn't agree or you, you think that's an interesting take, call back yeah. at me and I'll, we can we can expound on that a little bit more. Yeah. But um, in the meantime, uh, follow us 
on Facebook at Six Sense Report, on Twitter at Six Sense Report. You can follow me, Darnell, do good at Darnell on Twitter and on Instagram. So same thing. So D-O-G-U-D-D-A underscore Darnell. And that's Facebook and Twitter. And then Darnell Samuels on Facebook. Uh, yeah, on all social media, I'm T Joel N39. Uh, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, yeah, yeah. Follow me, tweet at me, message me. I'm down. And remember, success makes change. But you heard me. Does that make sense? I hear.